Well, this last week, uh, Bob Dylan sat down with the New York Times for his first interview in four years. Now, famously, uh, Dylan has a wide-ranging mind, so it's no surprise that he gave a wide-ranging interview. They talked about everything uh, from the coronavirus to the Kennedy assassination. Uh, but, but the moment that stood out to me and has really stuck with me was when the interviewer asked him about uh, Little Richard. Little Richard, uh, you might know, died in the last couple of weeks, and Little Richard was actually a really big deal in Bob Dylan's life. He wrote in his senior yearbook that his life's ambition was to join Little Richard. But what caught me off guard was not so much that Little Richard was brought up, but the question he put to Dylan about him, he asked him, he said, why do you think it is that more people don't pay attention to his gospel music? And Dylan's answer uh, was interesting. He said, well, it's probably because gospel music is the music of good news. And in these days, there just isn't any. Good news in today's world is like a fugitive, treated like a hoodlum and put on the run. But he goes on to say, on the other hand, gospel news is exemplary. It can give you courage. You can pace your life accordingly or try to anyway, and you can do it with honor and principles. Now that... That really resonated with me as I looked at Nehemiah 4, as God's people begin the work. Uh, I, I don't want to forget that this whole project was launched with a prayer, a prayer really of reliance on the good news. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 5, Nehemiah prayed uh, that they would be called to this work, or that he praised God for calling to them, them to this work, and he praised God as the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. So as they begin the work proper, it's, it's important to remember that this is work driven by, conceived by, and dependent upon the good news of God's covenant faithfulness. Right? The city might be in shambles, but the Lord is steadfast. The Lord is faithful. It's, it's good news that's given them courage. It's good news that is pacing their lives accordingly, as Dylan would put it. And yet, at the same time, they have run, into the, run headlong into the reality that the good news isn't received as good news by everybody. That it's received in, by some and tr attempted to be chased off like a fugitive, like a hoodlum put on the run. So, so that's the tension we're getting into as we get into Nehemiah 4 here. That's what we're contending with, that work has begun on the wall, the word is out in the neighborhood, but it is unwelcome. And when it comes to opposition to the work, this character, Sanballat the Horashite, is the first one who's mentioned every time. He is the ringleader. Back in chapter 2, when Nehemiah shows up, who's right there but Sanballat the Horashite, mocking and deriding the work. And now that the work has actually begun, he has gone from indignant to enraged. And just because he can't complain to the king because Nehemiah, of course, is there with the king's mandate. He's there with the king's provisions. That doesn't mean he's going to take any of this lying down. So he and his men set about doing two things that people who are hot under the collar and feeling hemmed in tend to do. They scorn and they scheme. Sanballat heaps scorn on the Jews to his Samaritan brothers 
to this little militia that's been gathered. And it comes in five rapid-fire questions. Now, this doesn't look like much more than a rant at first, but I think the questions actually are very important to understanding this text on at least two fronts. First of all, they comprise what turns out to be a a propaganda campaign against God's people. Uh, These are words that are weaponized. That's very clear from Nehemiah's prayer, which begins very abruptly in verse 4, where his main concern before the Lord is that God would do something about the scorn and the scheme of his enemies. And so that's kind of the first thing that's important to see, but I think it works on another level as well. And that is that taken together, these questions come to form what one scholar calls a theological tapestry that points to the accomplishment of the word of the Lord. It's often the case that weapons wielded against God's purposes and God's people in the Bible become, in the end, by the work of God, the very weapon that's turned against them, that becomes their own undoing. And something very much is at work, I think, here, and we'll see that as this plays out. Suffice to say for now, Sanballat asks more than he knows, and these questions will come to be answered in a way that shows the power and the, of the good news in ways that I don't think he could ever anticipate. Now, Sanballat's questions come fast and furious, but he has, he has formulated them. He's been thoughtful in putting these together. He's phrased them in such a way where it seems like you could only answer them in the negative. He begins with a swipe at God's people, asking, what are these, what are these feeble Jews doing? Um, he uses a word that is often applied to plants uh, to describe a, a, a withering plant, a dead plant, um, occasionally applied to people to describe people as worthless. But the, the essence of that question is essentially, you know, who do these good-for-nothing people think they are, and what do they think they're doing here? Then he continues along the same lines. He goes on to ask if, if, if they imagine they can restore this place for themselves. Does this weak, worthless people think they can pull this off at all? Greg pointed out last week as they, as they begin to get the work going that, you know, they've got perfumers out there doing the work of brick masons. That would have been hilarious to these guys. They, they, you know, this doesn't really ring well in our culture at all, but, you know, they would have thought it as crazy that women were out there helping with the work. All of it to them seemed like a mockery. They ask a third question, will they sacrifice? Now, this is a trickier question because the Israelites had been sacrificing in Jerusalem by this time for decades. Um, And so, you know, it might seem like a dumb question since they've been doing that, but but there's, there's something else going on here. He's not asking so much, will they enact sacrifice, because that's already going on. The question really has to do if, with, you know, do these people imagine that their sacrifices have earned them any favor from God? Have they been sufficiently pleasing to God so that their God would honor them in such a way that they could somehow restore this broken down city? The scorn continues in asking if they imagine, you know, of course, under the delusion that they can work hard enough to curry divine favor to finish up in a day, if, if ever. And finally, in kind of a summary question, he asks, will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish and the burned ones at that? You know, not only is this a pitiful people, not only is it a pitiable project, but let's be honest, 
this city is, a, is, is, is nothing more than a rock pile. It, it, it's something like, you know, you see these videos of, of buildings that get imploded by explosions, and you know what happens next? They clear it all out of there. It's like they've gone to the imploded wreckage imagining they're going to rebuild the skyscraper. And there's a particular jab here in mentioning that the materials have been burned. For, for, for Sanbalat, that indicated that not only was the project crazy, but that in fact it has been divinely cursed, burned over. So with all that, his buddy uh, Tobiah weighs in to say that what they built so far is so feeble that, you know, if even a fox, right, the most light-footed, sly creature in the world were to place his paw up on it, you know, it would just crumble. Not exactly what you're looking for in a structure meant to withstand prolonged military siege, right? Now, this isn't the first time Nehemiah has been on the receiving end of the ridicule. Uh, back in chapter 2, we, you know, we might remember uh, that, that he was on the, on the receiving end of the scorn, of the mockery. And he responded. He responded directly to them. And he said that the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you will have no right or portion in Jerusalem. Now, then his response was to tell them about God, but now his response isn't to talk to them at all, but to talk to God. So he prays. His prayer is what scholars call a prayer of vindication. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Scripture is full of these kinds of prayers. Um, and yet, it's not the kind of prayer we hear in church very often, if, it, if ever. It's probably not the kind of prayer we're used to praying personally. And that fact alone, I think, ought to make us maybe pay more attention to what's going on here. Um, the fact that this kind of prayer is ubiquitous in Scripture, and yet at the same time virtually absent from our public spiritual life, virtually absent from our private spiritual life, Nehemiah calls upon the Lord to hear him, for he and his people are despised. And he goes on to ask the Lord that he would turn their taunts upon them, that the, the weapon that they're wielding against God's people would be wielded against them and would be their own downfall, you know? So they scorn us for coming out of exile with provisions to rebuild the land that you've given us. May it be that they would be plundered and put into exile forever. They're maligning and accusing us and deriding us, so we pray that you wouldn't let that go, Lord. Don't cover their guilt. Don't blot out their sins from your sight. That's a challenging prayer. I don't know about you. I don't really pray like that very much. So what are we to make of it? Uh, you know, at first pass, I want to say, admittedly, it seems a little petty. It seems like, Lord, we've been insulted, been ridiculed. We don't like that. Don't let them get away with that. Judge them. And, and you know, you might wonder, shouldn't the people of God be able to handle a little ridicule without, you know, calling upon the Lord to forgive them and never, or to uh, judge them and never forgive their sins? But, but here's, I think, what we need to see, that this isn't driven as an issue of personal pride for Nehemiah or even national pride. Ne Nehemiah doesn't want vindication for themselves because they've been insulted. He wants vindication because God's person and purposes are being ridiculed and actively worked against. So he prays, may that never be. Don't let that stand. 
let that project fail in the most spectacular way. Nehemiah has a keen sense of the chasm between the way things are and the way things ought to be. And that is the stuff of his prayers. And I want to say, may the same be true of us. May that drive us to our knees to cry out as those who are aware of and troubled by the reality of that chasm. May we never be so cynical to think, well, this is just as good as it gets. May we have a a very sharp sense that things aren't as they ought to be, and the Lord is the only one who can do something about it. So the world's getting turned upside down by everything from, you know, pandemics to politics. That's not the way it ought to be, Lord. Do something about it. Human beings are being dehumanized because of their race. That is not the way it ought to be. Cities are being burned down. That isn't the way it ought to be. Abusive authority isn't the way it ought to be. Hatred of authority is not the way it ought to be. I mean, you, you know, we're living in this right now, right? Nehemiah's situation is intense, and his prayer is accordingly intense. But at its core, I just want to see this, make this connection. This prayer is no different than the one we just prayed a few minutes ago. No different. We prayed, hallowed be thy name. Why did we pray that prayer? Because God's name is not hallowed nearly enough. Things are not as they ought to be. Lord, vindicate that situation for the the glory of your name and for the good of our world, right? For the good of human beings. We prayed earlier, thy will be done on earth as as it is in heaven. Why, Why do we pray that prayer? Because there is obvious and ongoing rebellion against God's will. So, Lord, vindicate that situation. And, you know, if you're like me, you've grown accustomed to praying that prayer in hushed tones in church services, maybe with some soft music. But that prayer makes no sense at all unless we know, as Nehemiah knows here, that things are not as they ought to be and the Lord is the only one who can change the situation where his name is being profaned and where his will is being violently opposed. So may it be, you know, that that would become the stuff of our prayers, as it is for Nehemiah here? Would it get us worked up in such a way that the first place we run isn't our anxieties or social media, but our knees? Crying out to the Lord, vindicate your name. Make all this stuff spectacularly fail for your glory and for for the good of our neighbors. So Nehemiah does that. He prays. And, And readily, the work proceeds. The wall is quickly built to half its height. The people we are told, had a mind to work. Their heart was in it. But once the enemies of God see that progress, what was before scorning quickly becomes scheming. Plans are afoot. In fact, the number, you you might notice the number of uh, God's enemies doubles uh, in very short order. We've not only got Sanballat and the Samaritans and Tobiah and the Ammonites, but Very quickly, it grows to include the Arabs and the Ashdodites. Now, these names, to me, I wish I was more of a biblical scholar to tell you all about the cultural, you know, differentiation between all all these people, but basically what they represent as it relates to Jerusalem is north, south, east, and west. Uh, Together, these nations surround Judah, and now they are united. So we need to read it as, while the threat has gotten worse, not only militarily, but economically and in every other way. So 
unified against Judah and enraged that the walls are being mended and the breaches are beginning to be closed, they scheme. They scheme to fight against Jerusalem with the particular goal, notice, to cause confusion. Now, Nehemiah is aware that there's a plot afoot. He immediately prays to our God to set as a guard, to set a guard as protection against them day and night. This is a military preparation, but and we ought to notice that trusting God and taking action aren't mutually exclusive. They pray and they also make preparations. But that's only part of it. It's one thing to get ready for a fight. It's a much different thing to defend against confusion. Much harder thing to combat is confusion. We, we never get the particulars of how they planned to cause confusion in Jerusalem. But beginning in verse 10, you, you, you see how it begins to play out. It's working. Nothing is, it, it all begins with this phrase, in Judah it was said. There's, people are talking. There's some chatter going on. It's, nothing's attributed to any one person or any particular group, but there has come to be something of a prevailing public opinion. And, and, and you see it play out there that the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we'll not be able to re rebuild the wall. I mean, you can hear the echoes of all those enemy taunts from earlier, right? There's the scorn of who do these feeble people think they are, and do they think they can rebuild? And look at all the rubble. All of that's gotten under their skin. It's become something of the stuff of conviction already, and making it more challenging is a lot of it's true. People are getting tired. It is too much for them to do alone. The building materials are terrible. So then the question is, well, if it's true, how can it be said that they've caused confusion among God's people? Well, here's how. It's true enough, but not entirely true. It's true enough. It seems to me that key to causing confusion then and now is to bring just enough truth to bear. Just, just enough to kind of resonate with my personal experience, to ring true with some aspect of my convictions as to be plausible, as to occupy my thoughts, as to stir us up as a community, to get us grumbling and gossiping. There's, enough, there's just enough truth there. But there's another key to causing confusion as well, and that is to keep the focus on ourselves and our experience, our projects, our challenges, our beliefs, sufficiently so that we lose sight of what God has said and what God is doing. Those two things, a little bit of truth and a lot of focus on myself, goes a long way towards confusion. Right? Goes a long way in disconnecting us and distracting us from the larger story and the promises of God and the purpose of God and the person of God. All, you know, that's what got this whole project going in the first place, right? The good news of, of the Lord. So just to, I just want to think about how this works in, in maybe our contemporary situation, right? I mean, let's be honest. No church ever goes off the rails with a wholesale rejection of the truth, right? No, no church session, you know, goes to bed on a Sunday night and wakes up on Monday and says, you know what, we're all atheists now and we want nothing to do with the Bible, Never happens that way. Instead, churches become self-focused 
and selective. They focus intensely on themselves, on their programs, on their success, their reputation, their money, their people. Rather than laying themselves before the Word of God, they tend to latch on particular aspects of the gospel they find particularly energizing, particularly attractive, full of potential, true. And, and we know how this works. And there's a million iterations of this. Everything, these examples are, are inadequate. They're just examples. But, you know, you, you, you might just decide, well, we're going to be a loving church. Amen. We should be a loving church. But we can do that at forgetting that we ought to be challenging too. We ought to pursue loving our neighbors and pursue holiness at the same time. We, we can become wholly committed to discipleship, to making sure that all of our members are good Presbyterians, who have good doctrine, good biblical doctrine, and at the same time we can forget and neglect those who are curious in our community, those who need patience, those who need a wide berth to ask a lot of questions, right? That can be forgotten. We, we may be enamored of the idea of Christian unity and forget the beauty in, of biblical diversity in the body of Christ, right? We may love the idea of victory in Christ, but forget the certainty of Christian suffering. So again, these are inadequate. They're just a, a snippet, but you get the idea. A little bit of truth and a lot of focus on the self. I think the best illustration of this, of how this works, is seen at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Satan goes directly after Jesus at the beginning of his ministry to fundamentally cause confusion, to deter him from his mission, to get him forgetting about the Lord. He was more than happy to get Jesus focused on himself, on his thirst, on his hunger, on his weakness. And he was right there with the Bible, quoting Scripture to him to bolster his case with just enough truth. But notice how Jesus combats the confusion. His resp he responds not with selective truth, but with the totality of the story, the fullness of God's Word, with a, with a prevailing concern for the glory of God, with a certainty of His promises and His care for Him, even as He is in this feeble state, right? So confusion has begun to take hold of God's people in Jerusalem. Look how they speak in verse 10. Uh, it, they lament themselves and they leave out the Lord. There is not a word about the Lord there. This is, you know, the holy trinity of me, myself, and I. This is the story. You know, this is the show about nothing. My life movie. My strength is failing. Our strength is failing. True enough. But, but the strength of the Lord never fails. Remember how this whole project going? The piles of rubble are too much for us. True enough. But the Lord has called us to this work, called us to strengthen our hands for the good work. And the God of heaven will make us prosper, as Nehemiah said. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Again, true enough. That is exactly right. But you know what's never been true? You've never been by yourself. The Lord is with you. Focusing on self, forgetting Scripture, causes confusion to set in so that they become terribly afraid and easily allured. They're, they're certain to the point of becoming paranoid that the enemies are going to attack them at any time. At the same time, they are getting allured by their own people who are coming from the surrounding area, saying, just get out of here, get out of the city, get into the suburbs. So Nehemiah steps in, he gathers the people up, he organizes them. Um, 
puts them in the low places behind the walls where they're least susceptible to, a, to attack. Um, he organizes them in military fashion according to clan. He equips them with weapons. But the most important thing that Nehemiah does here comes not in what he does, but in what he says. And, and what he says is simple, and it's just these three words. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. And, and specifically, remember his awesomeness. Remember his greatness. And, and implicit in that call to remember, I think, is to remember that, that he is yours and you are his. That he's covenantally committed to you as his people. That he is flawlessly faith, faithful, steadfast in his love and faithfulness. So certainly, Nehemiah calls upon the people to fight, to fight for their brothers, their sons, wives, daughters, and homes. But, but before you get into the fight, remember the Lord. And then you get in the fight relying on the faithfulness of the Lord, the great and awesome God who is in the fight with you, who, in fact, fights for you. And in remembering the Lord, two things happen right away. First, the plans of the enemies are thwarted. Nehemiah makes it very clear that this was the Lord's doing. He says, God frustrated their plans. It's easy to launch an attack on a country that's unaware of a threat or lacking unity, but God has been gracious in revealing the reality of the threat and bringing unity to his people. But secondly, the work resumes not by way of resolve, but again, by remembering the Lord. That's not to say that all of a sudden they know the future. They don't. They remain vigilant, but they are now newly reliant upon the Lord. So Nehemiah does all this work of organizing, and he, he prays and prepares. The two are not mutually exclusive. He allocates some to full-time military service, some to construction work. He sets up an alarm system. He gives brick masons swords to have at their side just in case. He even made sure... Um, you know, that they would be ready for close combat and long-range combat. Who knows what's going to happen? He's very thoughtful about where they were vulnerable. He applied resources where they needed to be uh, applied. But critically, he remembers the Lord. He assures the people after all the preparations are made to remember that should the fight come, our God will fight for us. Because the city is God's city, this cause is his cause. Because this people is God's people, he is with you. That should war come upon us, it'll be his war. So those questions have been asked. What are these feeble people doing? Will they restore God's city? Will, they, will God reward them for their sacrifices? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the rubbish? And I think those same questions could be asked of us, right? Um, what are these people doing? Who do they think they are? I, I, I think it's fair to say that, that in every time and in every place, those questions have been asked of God's people, and they will continue to be asked of God's people. Sometimes they'll be put out there maliciously, as they are here, for the purpose of scorning God's people and scheming against them. I, I think there are other times where those questions are asked of genuine, benign curiosity. Heck, you may be here this morning asking some of these questions. Who are these people? I was driving by on Cordova, and what do they think they're doing? There's always a conversation about God going on in the culture. The questions will be asked. 
And they not only must be answered, I want to say they have been. Not, not by what we do, but by what God has done. They are answered not in our projects, but in seeing who we are and what we do in light of God's promises fulfilled in the person of Jesus. What are, what are these feeble people doing? Who are these people? Well, it's true. We are feeble people. We can't pretend to have it together. There's no life or strength in us apart from that which has been given to us by grace in Jesus. Peter put it well when he said, oh, God's people were once no people, but now they're God's people. Once they had received no mercy, but now we have received mercy. Can we do the work of restoration for ourselves? Absolutely not. Our, our own lives attest to that. We can't say we've made a life for ourselves, that we've succeeded in getting our act together or our hearts right. The Lord's raised us from the dead by the grace of Jesus. We're not able to change our own heart or anyone else's, but the Lord is more than able to will and to work that which is pleasing in His sight to not only revive dead hearts, but, but even to transform broken and twisted cultures. To bring about the work of renewal where now all we see is wreckage. Are we able to sacrifice, able to give enough of ourselves to get right with God, to even get right with others by being good enough or bearing enough to bring peace and reconciliation, wholeness and healing? No. And I would say the more we imagine we can do that, the more we deluded and hypocritical we reveal ourselves to be. But Jesus can do that, and Jesus did do that. He rescued us. He took care of our sin by bearing its grim, deadly consequences on the cross for us, but also He has relieved us from our striving by fulfilling God's holy standard, which was only our failure. Can we raise up the rubble and make it into God's holy city? No. But through the power of raising Jesus from the dead, God has raised up the piled, burned-up rubble of a fallen humanity and is making it into a temple, a kingdom for Himself. As Peter put it, we come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, so that we ourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We could never do this. Not in a day, not ever, but Jesus did because ours is a God who delights to have chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring, nothing, to, to, bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Our boast is in Christ. The questions have been asked and answered, and Jesus is the answer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel according to Nehemiah. We thank you for how you were at work in history uh, to show the greatness of your name, to show the beauty of your gospel, and Lord, how you are at work, not only, we're at work not only in the past, but even in the present. And so, Lord, we are increasingly aware because of your word of the great chasm in our lives, in our culture, in our world, between the way things are and the way things ought to be. And we're also deeply aware that in and of ourselves, we 
are utterly incapable, but Jesus, you are great and awesome. Would you be at work in our hearts? Lord, would the gospel grow in us? Would it be our great delight? Would we think a lot about it? Would our lives be lived through, in and through the gospel? Would we look at our world through its lenses? Lord, would we leave here as those well-fed, as those quick to pray, quick to rely upon you, Lord, knowing that in and of ourselves we are utterly insufficient, but Jesus, you are more than sufficient for these things. You are a great king and you rule and you reign. Bring glory to your name and good to our city and indeed to our world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.